Welcome to The Father's Heart with Tom Clark, better known as Papa Tom. Good morning, this is Papa Tom, and I have with us a Dr. Terry Powell from all the way out in Columbia, South Carolina. Dr. Powell is an author of a book called Serve Strong, and he's also a professor emeritus at Columbia International University, which I understand years ago what used to be called Columbia Bible College, and now has changed its name. Uh, Terry is a father of two, two boys, uh, who are also adults at this point, and also the grandfather of one grandson named Tate. And uh, as uh, many of our audience knows, I have six children and 15 grandchildren. So I've hit it out of the park a couple of times following being fruitful and multiply, as Scripture talks to us. But uh, we want to hear from uh, Terry about his thoughts about uh, being raised up and his relationship with his father and, and also him being a father and a grandfather himself. So, Terry, tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Thank you. I was born in Rutherford County and raised there in North Carolina. It's the county bordering Spartanburg County in South Carolina. Not in the mountains, but close to them. We lived on a dirt road, didn't have air conditioning. My mom and dad were both cotton mill workers. Dad only had a fifth, uh, seventh grade education, and mom had a fifth grade education. My, they took us to church. They were, uh, my father especially was very devout. Uh, he was a beaver for the Bible, even though he had little formal education. He really enjoyed studying the Bible and teaching an adult Sunday school class in our small church. Uh, and one of my favorite memories of my father, we had a country gospel radio station he would listen to, and I'd walk through the house. It was a small house, and he would, uh, music would be playing like a gospel hymn, and he would be sitting there with his mouth moving and tears going down his face because he was in a hand raised just praising God because of the touching nature of that hymn. That's one of my favorite memories. And uh, he was a very devout man. When he was young, I wish now in later life I had asked him more questions about his conversion, but he was a, a rough character in his teens and and um, even got in fights and would use knife on people. Uh, but he was a tender-hearted man uh, when I was born and later. He was had an alcoholic father, and he... Got, did his share of drinking before conversion, but never afterward, mm -hmm. um, because he knew he might go down that road. One of my memories of with us, when I was about 11 or 12 on a little league team, I spent the night with one of my friends from elementary school who was on the team, and I saw a huge scar on the neck of the father sitting across from the table. And, uh, you know, kids are not very tactful. I said, Mr. Edward, where did you get that scar? And he smiled, and I was stunned at what he said. He said, your daddy. I wow. said, my daddy, yes, when we were teens, we got into a fight, and he used a knife on me. Wow. So, uh, but uh, I you didn't know that them. man. The man I knew would do anything for anybody and very kind, and despite limited education, loved to read, and he even wrote some poetry, too. How old was your father when you were born? He was 30. So he'd already been converted, had a conversion Oh, yes, sometime before, probably late teens, early 20s. That's one of my regrets, is I didn't ask my father more questions about growing up. Mm -hmm. Did he teach you about Scripture? He modeled it, for sure. Mm -hmm. We didn't have regular family devotions, but mm -hmm. whenever 
I was sick, somebody was sick in the family, he'd sure go by the bed and pray for us. Uh, and his own study of scripture, he would be enclosed in one of our bedrooms studying uh, before his Sunday school class. And mm-hmm. I knew he loved the Lord. Well, we did not have regular devotions of any kind as a family. Did uh, you have brothers and sisters? I had an older brother who's three years older than me. He's still alive and an older sister. I was the youngest of three. And she was a nurse in North Carolina. Uh, She's with the Lord now, died at age 73. Mm -hmm. I'm 74 as of October. I'm 71 (laughs) as of July. Uh, Did... um what was your experience? Uh, you said he didn't tell really teach you the Bible, but he, he mirrored and uh, he showed you what it was like uh, to be a father. So what were your experiences with him where he, as his son, you were the youngest of three, and how did you, do you have any stories you can relate to our audience about um, when he was raising you up, uh, discipline stories or stories where he corrected you or taught you or things like that? I was raised in an era and I even practiced it when I was real young as a father, is if you uh, directly defied your parent, Mm -hmm. you were spanked. Mm -hmm. And the way they did it in the country, and my dad would get what we called a hickory off of a bush. Now, he did not abuse us. I never had mean thoughts about my own dad. But on rare instances where he was trying to protect me and I defied him, he would take something off the bush and whip me with it. The only time he ever hurt my legs enough to cause some real pain or bleeding, he profusely apologized. So uh, I know there's a lot of different views on this physical discipline now, but uh, it never caused me to hate my father because the times he did it, one time he had told me not to be around a particular classmate at his house near the elementary school Mm -hmm. because he knew his dad was a real mean guy and an alcoholic and a bootlegger. Mm. So it was a bad influence. And one time he couldn't find me when he came to pick me up at school. And he had a sense since I'd been talking about this friend that I was at his house two blocks away. Mm-hmm. And when we got there, we were already in a fist fight, mad at each other in the front yard. Well, that's one of the times he spanked me. And I can assure you, I never went back to that house. Mm-hmm. But I know now in retrospect, he was warning me against the kind of influence that he fell to as a teenager. Sure. And I appreciated that. I think that type of warning really took hold. But I, uh, he didn't do this often, and he only did it for defiance. The thing that I get bothered by with some parents in a restaurant, um, I wish I had a moment back when my kids were little and we were at a restaurant after moving here in the 1980s. And a dad reached across to a toddler, no more than about two years old, and smacked him for spilling his milk. Hmm. That he wouldn't get by with that in front of me today, because you don't do you don't spank for an accident. You don't spank sure. when a child's real tired and weary and need to needs to go down for a nap, uh, and they're, they're going to be more impatient then. You know, the other we- thing my daddy did is he always attended my baseball games. He was my biggest fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he worked hard in a cotton mill and probably wanted to go home and rest. But our Little League games, when I was uh, 8 through 12, was right near where he worked in a little mill town. 
and I have vivid memories. I could always see him come in shortly before the game started. And he Were you was a good way. baseball player? Were you a good baseball player? I was able to get a college scholarship in part. Wow, so you must have been really good. College in North Carolina back then was a two-year school. It's now four. And I got some scholarship money after pitching a no-hitter in my last high school game. And then uh, I had a chance to go to UNC Chapel Hill and pitch in the Atlantic Coast Conference after junior college. But that summer I was called to vocational ministry and I shifted to Carson Newman College in East Tennessee. But they had a good baseball team. So you were a good athlete growing up and uh, had that uh, experience. But mostly the support that you got from your dad was uh, really, I think, uh, essential to uh, releasing you into uh, and encouraging you to uh, become the athlete that uh, God had gifted you with the, the natural talents, I'm sure, to play the game. So you were a pitcher, right? I was a left-handed pitcher. I was 6'4", 215 in high school. Wow. Let me mention one other day, you asked a question, one of the way my dad influenced my faith and how I parent is he did this more when I went away to college, was yeah. no longer under, in the house. But he would write me a letter about every month. We'll be back in a moment to hear the rest and of the story. Letters, we didn't even have a typewriter in our home. We'll be back in a moment with Terry Powell. We're back with Dr. Terry Powell, and he was sharing with us from his heart, and he was telling us an experience that he had uh, with his dad. As I was asking him questions about being an athlete, and he told us he's 6'4", 215 pounds, I think, in uh, high school, and he was a lefty. And the fastest way to make the pros, I understand, is to be a left-handed pitcher and throw the ball 90 miles an hour. So I don't know if Terry got that out that fast, but he is going to share with us uh, an experience he had with his dad that's very encouraging. Yes, well, it wasn't just about baseball, but it included that. He would write handwritten letters uh, when I went away to college. He knew one time I had a bad outing as a pitcher, though he didn't get to see it. And uh, and I told him about it, and he wrote me a long letter saying how much he believed in me, and he thought I had what it made to go pro and to do well in college. And for the most part in college, I, I did do a lot better. But he, he would mention other things as well. He might mention an area uh, where, like, I may have kept my clothes untidy, and now that I'm adult and have a roommate and so forth, he would... Um, warned me to make sure I'm tidier there than I was at home. And he said, that's my fault because I didn't make you do anything mm-hmm. with your clothes at home. Mm-hmm. So he would he was humble, he, but he, he, would, he would do things to instruct me, realizing I was almost on my own, but mainly the letters of encouragement. Well, that's great. You know, when I was growing up, uh, I was a catcher. And uh, I, got, I had some experiences when I was... 16 to 18 years old. I really didn't, uh, I wasn't good enough to get a scholarship to college, uh, but I did have some experiences up in the New York area. I played for a team called the New York Giants. It was, it was kind of in the early farm system uh, of the San Francisco Giants. And uh, we had a, a schedule. We'd play an 80-game schedule during the summertime and doubleheaders on Saturday, doubleheaders on Sundays. And we had uh, a number, like at least... Uh, 10, 12 players out of the team would actually go into the, uh, the minor leagues. But the interesting part of the story was that um, uh, this story that I'll tell you and I'll share was uh, one of the players on the team was a phenomenal athlete, and his name was Eddie Ford. 
and he was Whitey Ford's son. Oh. And Whitey Ford would come to several of the games, and occasionally he would bring Mickey Mantle with him. And they would show up in an El Dorado car and uh, come watch the game. Mickey would stay usually uh, away from the crowds a little bit in the, uh, in the car. But his dad, uh, Eddie, Eddie Ford's dad, Whitey, would come out. And since I was a catcher, I would catch the pitchers, obviously. And Whitey Ford would instruct the pitchers on how to throw curveballs and you know, show them different pitches to throw and how to hold the ball and so forth. So I would, I would be closer than I am to you right now with uh, the famous Hall of Famer, uh, Whitey Ford. So uh, that being part of my life experience when I was about 17, 18 years old uh, in uh, high school in the summer leagues uh, led to a situation where years later, I was at a CBMC with a Christian Brothers... Um, Christian Businessmen, that's what, Christian Businessmen um, was founded by Demos Shikarian years ago, about 40 years ago, uh, when I first became a believer. And I guess I was in my 30s. Um, I went to a uh, luncheon put on, and the guest speaker was Bobby Richardson. And Bobby Richardson uh, was the second baseman for the New York Yankees at the time that Whitey Ford was the pitcher. And uh, he told me that he became a coach at South Carolina, of all places. USC. He did for a few years in the 70s after he retired. Exactly. And he, said, he told us a story at lunch about the best player he ever coached was Eddie Ford. And I hmm. believe it was in the 1975, people fact check me on this, but I believe it was 1975. Um, that was a year. It wasn't the correct year. This is the story. Uh, University of South Carolina was in the College World Series. And they won the NCAA championship. And Eddie Ford was the MVP hmm. of uh, the NCAA, the College World Series. And he received a, uh, an offer from the Boston Red Sox in 1975, $75,000 signing bonus. And um, he said he was a shoe in to make the pros. But uh, when he went into the mighty leagues, back that time it would be like 76, 77, or late 70s. I could be off a year or two. Um, he, didn't, he couldn't stand the minor leagues because they put you in you know, a single A, double A. I think he made it up to maybe triple A in a, two or three years. But he didn't like the lifestyle. It was, it was so grinding on him that uh, he couldn't ha handle that. So... He decided to pack it in, called his dad up, and went into commodities trading, I think, down in between New York City and, and uh, Miami. And uh, I think it was Bobby said he went, was able to get paid a lot of money back there, like $175,000, which was a lot of money. $150,000, $175,000 as a commodity trader in the late 70s was big, big bucks. And, uh, you know, they weren't only paying him like $50,000 a year in the minor leagues. But had he stayed on, he said he would have been. You know, I think it was in the, in the 80s, like around 85 or so, late 80s, that the salaries really popped up dramatically. And mm -hmm. uh, he would be making a million or two million dollars a year way back then uh, because he would have been in the top two players, he said, on the team. So that's my story of uh, one of my stories of baseball that kind of correlates to uh, some of the things you were describing and, uh, and my experience in baseball as a catcher. Uh, I was pretty good back then, but I wasn't that, I wasn't that big, wasn't that strong, wasn't that fast. Uh, so I didn't have the physical criteria to make it uh, either a scholarship as college or certainly not even to the next level with the professional level. But I did rub shoulders with some people that were very interesting. 
Well, Bobby Richardson's still alive and living in Sumter in his 80s. And uh, he, if I'm not mistaken, he led Mickey Mantle to the Lord late in Mantle's life before he died of cancer. Bobby's always been very outspoken about his Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had uh, one of his sons in the first year I taught in a class um, at the seminary. So, uh, but, and I had a chat with him once on the phone, but I haven't uh, met him extensively. Yeah, he was an evangelist. I mean, the the time that I met him was, uh, as I said, he was a guest speaker for this Christian businessmen's luncheon, and he was very evangelistic. Um, and in that uh, milieu, or that the way he he uh, described himself, that's how the story came out about '84. And I I talked to him later afterwards. Uh, I understand Mickey Mantle had kind of a tough life. He, he was, uh, I think, he was an alcoholic, and he was, um, you know, encumbered with that. Um, mm. Uh, addiction, and uh, Bobby Richardson was very outgoing and very outspoken for um, leading people to the Lord. So I'm sure that would would be surprised at what that happened, as well as maybe some other players as well. So uh, tell us a story about your um, motivation for writing your book, Serve Strong. I wrote Serve Strong primarily, as the subtitle suggests, to encourage people who serve the Lord. Even though I've got a lot of letters from missionaries or emails or text and pastors and staff of churches, it was also written to the layperson. All of us should be in some form of ministry. It's a privilege. Uh, Those who teach Sunday school or those who lead small group Bible studies. Uh, So it's 25 24 small short chapters that deal with principles from Scripture that to encourage anyone who serve um, in the Lord, whether as a vocationally or a volunteer. And I wrote them because over the years, I'm depression prone. I have a blog on depression and faith, penetratingthedarkness.com. I own that URL, penetratingthedarkness.com, and I just share stories. I'm very transparent about it. And uh, God has not chosen, in my case, to take this away, but his means of grace, such as promises in Scripture and prayers of friends in the body of Christ and their presence with me, uh, they're means of grace that sustain me greatly. Hmm. And I'm sort of forced to rely upon him. So in my own weakness, uh, a lot of principles have encouraged me, and I wanted to pass those along, and they're not applicable just to those who are depressed or despondent. But, but anyone who served the Lord is going to have moments of discouragement or they don't see fruit. They wonder if all the preparation time for preaching or teaching the Bible is worth it. So the, uh, the, I'm just sharing things that the Lord had taught me to keep me going and to, uh, that instill resilience in me. Do you believe in the, uh, the priesthood of all believers? I taught it extensively. And when I taught courses on foundations for Christian ministry and for required in my program and my major, uh, I focused extensively upon that principle. In Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, he gave church leaders offices such as pastor teachers uh, so the saints could do the work of ministry in the construction of Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Everyone is called to ministry, though certainly not all vocationally. Mm-hmm. And God will give us opportunities that fit not only how he put us together, but the gifts he's given us and so forth. Does uh, your book uh, cover the fivefold ministry? The what? The fivefold ministry of apostles, prophets, 
um, evangelists, it's teachers? specifically pastors. analyzing those offices there in Ephesians 4.11, but it does emphasize it's, a lot of it applies to those who handle Scripture, even in an informal way as a small group leader or Sunday school teacher, mm-hmm. uh, it's in, or as personal evangelists, and certainly those who preach and so forth. It's simply taking principles and applying them to different uh, spheres of ministry and life. If you wanted to share with our audience one principle that would help them overcome depression, what would it be? I'm hesitating because I'm just being honest here. I don't think I can tell someone for sure how to overcome depression, but I do believe because of experience, I can tell people how God sustains in depression, perhaps shortens the stay of an episode, or perhaps enables me to keep serving when I am a little despondent in spirit. Uh, I'm one who believes that just like in bodily pain or disability, God may heal, he can heal completely, but he often and usually does not. But he uses that adversity in many ways to keep us dependent. And so he gets glory through what we do. But I can tell people what sustains me. And it's not just one answer. Lament praying, which is all over the Psalms, one-third to one-half of the Psalms may be lament, honest prayers of raising questions, even doubts to God, and with respect, uh, some measure of complaint, like David in Psalm 13, why have you forgotten me? How long is this going to go on? And so forth. So as long, I don't believe in crossing a line of disrespect and shaking my fist and getting angry at God like that. There's a line I don't want to cross of disrespect, but I do believe I can be honest before God by raising questions. We'll be back in a moment. We're back with Dr. Terry Powell, and we touched on a very important subject, and that's how can people deal with depression? Uh, It's a very major issue in our world today because there are a lot of people... um, at some point in time in their life, have gotten depressed. I heard statistics that say as many as uh, 40% of the population at some point has gone through periods of depression. So it's a very big issue. And Dr. Terry Powell has some advice for our audience on the things that God has taught him on maybe as much as uh, three things that he could share with the audience about how to uh, respond in a positive way to overcome depression. So with that, Terry, share with our audience what the Lord has revealed to you. Uh, I'll share three ways, and that's not the limit mm-hmm. of opportunities, but it's three main ones. One would be honest praying. In Scripture, we call those lament psalms, because some of those psalms are hard prayers between characters and God. Uh, not just David, but he's included, Psalm 13 mentions he's questioning God, and he's complaining to God, and he's focusing on God. Why haven't you entered? Why have you forsaken me, he asked. Now, he didn't necessarily have depression like me, but that's that's how I feel. I recall I have literally been alone in the house some years ago during a difficult episode of depression, and I had a box of tissues, and I was in my second handful of tissues crying because I just felt such despair, and I couldn't tell you why. Mm. But I cried out to God, why are you not here? 
which cognitively I believed he was, mm -hmm. but I didn't feel that he was. Gotcha. So what I did is I would just pray honestly. And I'd learned through a book on lament. Uh, there are several of them out. Michael Card wrote one called Sacred, Sacred Sorrows years ago. And he points out that you're actually showing faith in God when you pray honestly and raise questions and express your doubts about his love and so forth. Because if you didn't believe he was there or that he cared, why would you even go to him? True. So uh, the honest praying of Handel Wright before God is, is showing faith in him. It's not a lack of faith. And typically when I pray those hard prayers, the Lord brings me to a calmer spirit. Right. But I have to be honest with him first. Scripture tells uh, us that we must believe that he exists. And he yes. is a rewarder of those who seek him. Yes, and that's when Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight and following, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So my weariness is often showed in spirit, mm -hmm. not just body. And so I come. My job is to come, to show my faith by coming. So those who sometimes think if you pray honestly, if you raise hard questions, that God will reject you or you're showing lack of faith, I don't believe that because... I wouldn't talk to him when I'm hurting if I didn't have some measure of faith. Sure. The second is God's Word. I don't believe just in quoting a verse and depression goes away, but perhaps the most significant weapon is promises in Scripture that uh, are true at my belief system, even if I don't feel like I'm experiencing them or if I'm not aware of them. So memorizing promises and preaching those promises to myself. It may be when I'm tempted, and the temptation, I think, is just too strong. I'll, I will say, Lord, you said in 2 Thessalonians 3.3 3, that you, the Lord is faithful, and he will protect you and strengthen you against the evil one. So I said, Lord, I'm going to choose to believe that, even though I want to yield right now. So I preach verses to myself for why I'm despondent. God tells me he loves me, so I'm going to believe that. And uh, verses uh, that many, all throughout Scripture, I don't feel the presence of God. I'm not cognizant that he's with me, but I know the Bible says he is. So I'll quote a Scripture to myself where Jesus said in John 14, I think it's verse 16, about the Holy Spirit, that he will be with you forever. He will be in you and with you forever. Uh, and in Hebrews 13:5, uh, there's another promise of his presence, Isaiah 41:10. And when sometimes I can't tell when it's me or the evil one, but when I'm when I'm feeling this inside voice saying, God's not with you. Why are you serving him? Why you go teach this class? Um, I will say, you're right. I don't feel the Lord today, but his word says I am with you. Isaiah 41, 10, and others, I will quote that verse word for word and say, that's what I choose to believe. What's true is not how I feel, it's what God's Word says. That's very important. That, that's true not only for despondency, but for other things. The, the third thing is the body of Christ, uh, good Christian friends. I, the book Serve Strong, I dedicated it to my, a good friend that I call when I'm depressed, and he prays for me over the phone. But when I was first, when I was writing that book a few years ago, the last chapter I wrote, it's next to the last in the book, was called Don't Lose Heart. All the insights from 2 Corinthians 4, where that's repeated, Don't Lose Heart, by Paul to the Corinthians. And I was so depressed that day, trying to write on a writing pad my rough draft by pencil, 
that tears were falling on the writing pad, and I was just extremely depressed and couldn't tell you why. And I called him. He's on the sidewalk at lunch hour during down in downtown Columbia near where he worked. And after he saw what I said, I need you to pray for me. I need help. I don't want to write the chapter on losing heart when I feel like I've lost heart. Hmm. Well, there was silence. And then I heard him scream, literally scream in agony. And he started crying, boisterous crying, apparently out loud. And I thought he had seen a wreck in the road or some some kid get hit by a car on Main Street where he was walking. And I said, Howard, Howard, what's wrong? And then through then he calmed down a bit. And I said, did, did, did you see an accident? And he said, no, no, I just I feel I hurt so much for you. I just wish I could take that pain away for you right now. That meant that that in itself, that kind of love caused me to dedicate Serve Strong to him, and I had not planned to do that uh, because I have to rely on friends. There's a lady with the Lord. She was disabled her last decade of life, and some of my worst years in the early 2000s, I would come home on Sunday and not want to live through the day after church and so forth. More than once, I called her, and she went to war over the phone. It didn't magically take my depression away, but it helped me cope. It helped me get through the day. So I think the promises and teaching of God's Word that I memorize and remind myself of, the tapping into the body of Christ and honest praying are three means of grace that I tap into. I will say one thing about calling a friend or asking someone to join you and pray with you when you're down or troubled about anything is Galatians 6.2, as you know, says, bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, Howard or anyone else cannot bear my burden if I'm not willing to be transparent and admit them. So whether it's a counselor, which may be a means of grace, or whether it is a friend that I call or want to be with when I'm down, I have to admit that I don't have it together emotionally. I have to admit that I'm in despair. Um, But because unless I reveal my burdens, who can help me bear them? Same thing is true with the Lord. (laughs) Unless we're transparent with him. How can he yeah. bear our burdens if we're not open and transparent with him? If we don't let him in, we don't let him in to what's our, our, our thoughts. I mean, not that he can't know them, but I think he reserves himself from knowing even our thoughts if we, if we don't want out of our own free will to share them. Once we share them, he, he, he bears them. He's, he's there for us. Um, one of the things you said, which was very important, I want to key on is this idea of feeling because uh, depression has a lot to do with feeling. And we live in a world that uh, promotes feelings as the, as the criteria for which we should supposed to respond to thing. And scripture tells us we're not supposed to uh, base uh, what we believe on our feelings. It's always based upon uh, walking by faith and not by sight, walking by spirit. And if we walk by our spirit, it's not going to look at our circumstances around us so many people I talk to about uh, depression who get depressed. And in fact, one of the members of my family right now, one of my kids is in his 30s, uh, has been out of a job for 12 months, and it's wearing on him. And if he's not in depression, he's at the brink of it. And, uh, you know, he's, he's applied for over 800, 900, maybe 1,000 jobs. He's had all these interviews. Uh, it's not like he's not trying. Uh, even jobs that don't fit in his 
his area of expertise. He, he just, he doesn't seem to be able to get a job. So he's just, when you internalize that and you start asking yourself the question, what's wrong with me? Where is God? Where is God? He's not, you know, I, I've appealed. I prayed for a job. My father's not answering me. You know, those kind of, all those kinds of questions and all those kinds of thoughts, it could lead you down a path of depression uh, if you think of those things. But it's uh, the things you're talking about, about going back to God's word. And uh, he has many things in his word which are encouraging us that he wants to prosper us, which we know in, in the scripture tells us that. And it helps us if we can get out of the funk of what our circumstances are in the moment and get past to see into our future and what God has for us in our future. It helps lead us out of that pit and certainly the pit of created by the feelings that we're experiencing. Yeah, that's one of the truths in the, the book on the chapter on Don't Lose Heart, whether that's depression or other things. I know we want help now, and God cares about now, but uh, the Revelation 21.4, and the new heaven and new earth, when we're with the Lord, there will be no more pain, no more mourning, no more death, no more tears. And so whether it's dealing with temptation or whether it's my depression, the Holy Spirit whispers, hang on, don't give up, don't shuck your faith. This is temporary, focus on forever. Mm -hmm. So that, that truth does help me and it doesn't cause me to escape this world, it helps me to live in this world with more hope and confidence. Mm -hmm. I just, my wife and I just saw a movie which is very interesting called After Death. It's a Christian movie. Uh, supported by Angel Studios, which puts out the series The Chosen. And uh, in, it recounts numerous stories, dozens of stories, of people who have died and have had after-death experiences. And um, there are doctors and scientific people, who, or doctors are using a scientific process, I should say. But they're recounting statistically, the, um, they're surveying the people who died and the consistency with the statements that they have. And every single one of them will say that uh, there was a great light that they saw and they went to heaven and they didn't want to come back. Heaven was such a beautiful place and they didn't feel any pain. And it was, it was transitioning from a place of you know, not feeling any pain, going from these horrific accidents that they typically had or heart attacks, went into a place uh, of the afterlife and uh, had experiences with God. Um, many of them did. Uh, and in all those experiences, one of the things that they'll come back with consistency was always it had to be a great light, not like the sunlight, but it was a, it was a great light. And they always spoke about the love that they felt from God speaking to them and one of the things they consistently said is that I felt that he had love only for me. It was just between God and me that I was experiencing this. So we'll be back in a moment and talk further about how to get out of depression and how to move on in the glory that God has for us here on the earth. We'll be back in a moment with Dr. Terry Powell. back with Dr. Terry Powell and we're discussing how to overcome discouragement for the devil, uh, evil, the evil one tries to, who is our adversary, tries to use the deeds of a doubt and discouragement and uses oftentimes delay to try to discourage us. 
But in his book, Serve Strong, there's a chapter or two wherein uh, Terry is describing, Dr. Terry Powell is describing uh, how different Bible characters were able to overcome delays in their life and not become discouraged. So with that, I'll turn that over. What are those stories that you're describing, Terry? Well, those two chapters in the book, part one and two, deal with Abraham and with Joseph and um, Paul and also Hudson Taylor. Um, Was he in the Bible? No, but uh, he was a well-known missionary, as you know. But I wanted to give one example from uh, a non-biblical. The stories don't necessarily make waiting easy, but they help me when I'm going through a time of waiting. Years younger, when I was waiting between ministries or jobs, or when I'm waiting for an answered prayer, or waiting for something to happen that I need to happen or want to happen, I reflect upon 25 years from the time Abraham was called and a promise was given in Genesis and then repeated later, 25 years before all those promises were fulfilled. And he went through some difficult times, even made some of his own mistakes during those years. But the same was in David's life. They were approximately the same number of years from the time he was anointed to be king and from the time that he had both of the kingdoms under his reign. And he was on the run from Saul a lot of those years. Some of the Psalms written in caves where he was, so, uh, where he wrote and hid from Saul. But uh, he, th- th- how God used delay to strengthen his faith. We have some of the Psalms because of David's delay and so forth. And when Hudson Taylor, the missionary to, from Great Britain to uh, China, uh, when he spent six years and then had to come back in his late 20s, I think, for medical reasons and poor health, he waited five years to go back to China. He was able to do some things, but he also had a lot of a delay because of poor health. And during those five years, God gave him a vision to start a mission. And that mission is still in existence, a mission agency. Mm-hmm. So he went back with more people for the rest of his life in China because of that delay. But those stories are told in much more detail. It reminds me of a devotional book from many years ago uh, called The Discipline of Delay by V. Raymond Edmond. The discipline, uh, he has a chapter on the disciplines of life, a chapter on, pardon me, on delay itself. And he says in there something I often think and quote, that God delay never thwarts God's purpose for your life. It merely polishes his instrument. It never thwarts God's purpose, but it polishes his instrument. I also go to Psalm 37 and Psalm 62 to read when I'm in a waiting time because that those deal with waiting upon the Lord. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a time when uh, I participated a number of years ago in a prophet's conference and it was led by a Dr. Costadier, and he was leading these young prophetic people into understanding God's ways. And one of the things he brought out was that when prophetic people get visions or God speaks to them, the biggest uh, problem they're going to have in their life and in their ministry was the issue of timing. Because they see things in the spirit and they think it's going to happen right now. And sometimes it doesn't happen for 20, 25, 30 years later. And it's hard for them to uh, continue to stay the course when the things that they see in the spirit are imminent in their mind, 
but because they actually go outside of time and then see something in the future. And then when they come back into time, it's, it's not happening. Uh, there's another word that I think that we should, could use because it's something that's pertinent to my life right now. And this, the word is convergence and that there's things that are happening uh, in God's plan for our lives. Every one of us needs to seek our identity, our calling and our destiny. And when we're praying and we're having an active conversation with the Lord, when things get delayed um, that we are expecting to happen, as we develop our expectations, and when they don't happen in the time frame that we're expecting, we can get depressed again. We talked about, or discouraged. Discouraged or depressed. We probably discouraged before you get depressed. We certainly get discouraged because they're not happening the way we expect to. And yet we don't see the whole picture. Our trust has to be, there's a convergence of things. Maybe many, many elements have to come together for the thing that God told us to happen. And we don't see those things. We, our sight doesn't include, encompass uh, all the things that God's moving into place. Uh, I've seen it happen with my children also uh, praying for wives. Yeah, they're praying for wives and, and I believe God's got to give them a godly woman as a wife. And yet they took the women after women after women and it's like, it's not the right one, it's not the right one. You know, they, they don't fit. Uh, and so when is the convergence going to happen when that right uh, spouse, that right mate is going to show up, you know, on the horizon of their, of their time? Uh, Abraham, uh, as you talked about, to unpack that a little bit, uh, he makes a big mistake with Hagar, right? With yes. uh, Sarah says, hey, you know, it ain't happening, Abraham. Uh, God promised you a child, and, uh, you know, he gets to be 100 years old. He was, he was getting old. <laughs> he was old when the promise came, and it didn't happen right away. Then she, he, she gives him Hagar, who is an Egyptian princess, if I understand the scriptures relating to that. And uh, as you know, the story has Ishmael. Well, Ishmael was Abraham's solution. He was not the child of promise, as we all know. So he makes a mistake going down the track with Hagar, and then he has to wait further for Isaac to show up on the stage, right? And it's like the one child, after all this time, he's 100 years old. Imagine living on the earth 100 years and, and having uh, the one son of promise. The other thing that's remarkable to me when you talk about all those delays, because you know, we live in a modern world, we think, well, maybe it's, you know, it's his side of the thing, you know, his... Uh, his, his sperm isn't, isn't lively or something, or it's, it's Sarah can't conceive, or you know, you're going back and forth in the natural, trying to think of why these things have been delayed 100 years. And then if you follow the story further, after um, uh, Sarah dies, he takes out a wife, but he's 140 years old, and he has a handful, five or six more kids. I remember reading that in scripture, I was shocked. I said, he has all these delays to 100 to have the first one of promise, right? Then he's 140, and he has like five or six more kids, and he dies at like 175. Well, it wasn't anything wrong with the uh, fertility of his, uh, of his seed if he's having kids at 140 years of age, or even 100 for that matter. Yes. So these delays, why was it delayed? I mean, God had a plan for that, and it took that long for the plan to come into place, right? It's like, follow the plan. Chapter and serve strong on the power of God's Word through the messenger, whether it's you're witnessing or teaching a class or preaching, and how our confidence is rooted in the life-changing work of the Holy Spirit through Scripture. Mm -hmm. And... Um, they give Spurgeon actually gave this story. It was old by his time, and it's been verified by Church History magazine. 
that there was a pastor who was giving a blessing after a message in which he shared the gospel. This was decades now, but even before Spurgeon's time. And that pastor uh, stopped his benediction in the middle because he said, I can't bless you. Some of you here listening to me today are cursed because you don't know the Lord Jesus. There was a 15-year-old lad who did not respond to the Lord's wooing that day. And this is no joke. He didn't live to be 100 very often back in the 1800s and before. But that man was 100 years old. He had moved over to Virginia on his 100th birthday, was sitting under a ledge, and he remembered that pastor's words. He knew the gospel well enough to respond to it without any other aid. And he felt burdened about his soul, and he prayed to receive Christ on his own because of a message he heard 85 years before. Mm -hmm. And then he lived three more years to give testimony to the fact that he really had been changed by God's truth. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, we don't understand these things and have to do with time. One of the other people you mentioned earlier, but we didn't unpack him, was Joseph. Joseph is a very key person in Scripture where um, he gets these two dreams, and both the dreams were uh, somebody, when he told his uh, mother and father, he told his brothers, you know, the story, they got upset with him because they thought he was arrogant and proud that he was going to say that everybody's gonna, that his brothers are going to bow down to him and his mother and father got to bow down to him and this this caused them to uh, reject him, hate him actually, be jealous of him uh, and throw him into the uh, the pit. Some of them wanted to kill him, but then another brother stood up and said, don't kill him, put him into the well. They put him in the well, the traders came by and they traded him down to uh, slavery in, uh, in Egypt with Potiphar. You know that story, then he ends up going into prison and years are going by. I think it was like 16 or 17 when he first got put into prison. Uh, it wasn't until he was about 35, I think it was, before he got raised up. And uh, it took all that time to be raised up. And there was another seven, no, it was 30 years old. It was, it was from 17 to 30, it was 13 years. But it was seven more years later, so it was a full, full of 20 years, uh, before his brothers come down to see him because he's now prime minister of, of Egypt. And in all that time that was delayed, you ask yourself the question, why was it delayed to begin with? That he was in the right position at the right time for uh, the purposes that God had to bless uh, his family. And the first, eventually the 12 tribes of Israel were blessed because they, they had the, the food coming from them from Egypt. But if I look at it back in terms of the light of the scripture we could now look back on, there had to be a time for him to be able to forgive his brothers. You'd have to think that he had to deal with that issue. Tom, there's a, a verse of scripture in the Psalms it, talking about Joseph, and it says the word of the Lord tested him while he was in Egypt. And it has the idea of refining and removing coarse elements. Uh, I've also believed that some of that delay was developing character in Joseph beyond Absolutely. what and Absolutely. so, and as you know, at the end of Genesis chapter 50 and maybe verse 20, he says to his brothers, ultimately, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He Amen. understood the delay. He understood the reason for it. And that's a lesson we should take from us, that God has a plan for our life. He has our identity down. 
our uh, calling on our destiny, and we need to trust the plan of our Father because He's a good, good Father, absolutely good. From the Father's Heart Talk Show, we uh, pray for all the people listening to our audience. Do not be discouraged by delay in your life.